Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 35 verses. You follow along as I read. Came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him, and healed him, and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox, fallen into a pit, will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those that were bidden, which, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee him, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the, blind, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, but they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things. He said unto him, Blessed is he that eateth bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excuse. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. The Lord said unto the servant, Go out in the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoso doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after that he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and is not able to finish. But what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to beat him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, 
wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. And I pray that today that you would speak to hearts, encourage us, challenge us, bring conviction where conviction is needed. May you be glorified, and may your spirit have free reign in each of our lives. For our good and thy glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage of scripture begins, of course, with a Pharisee inviting the Lord to his house. Now, whether out of interest in the Lord or to scrutinize him is a good question. Because the verse 1 tells us that they watched him, and that word watched means they, they scrutinized him. Uh, this presented them with an opportunity, of course, to judge him according to their law. But Jesus reveals their hypocrisy and challenges them to what is true discipleship. What it really means to follow the Lord. Your disciple is a learner. He's a pupil or one who follows one's teaching. That's the definition of a disciple. A good picture, I believe, of a disciple in the New Testament would be, of course, a Mary who would sit at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And she didn't just sit there and listen to him, she believed it. Hence, you don't find her at the tomb. She believed he had risen. Another good example of a, a disciple would be Timothy. Timothy was like Paul's own son in the ministry, and, and, uh, and of course Paul uh, taught Timothy and... and um, uh, ordained him and so on. So, so that is what a disciple is. So I want to look at five things this morning, uh, five things, four things, I'm sorry, that uh, characteristics uh, or, uh, of, a, of a true disciple. So first of all, a disciple is one who exemplifies an attitude of humility. In verse, uh, verses 2 through 6, the Bible says, and Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy, and Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him and healed him, and he let them go, him go. And he and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. So he 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 asked them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they, the Bible says they held their peace. In other words, they didn't want to give an answer. I believe they were unsure of their answer. You see, their answer would have been no. It's not lawful. But Jesus points out very clearly that their answer, their, their belief, was not true to the word of God. It was not following the Lord's commandment. It wasn't being a disciple of the Lord because they would pull an ox or an ass out of a pit on the Sabbath day. But they wouldn't heal a man. You see, and they had no answer. You see, they had their own standard of righteousness. They did what was right in their own eyes. You know, though we live in the Bible Belt, most professing Christians have their own ideas how to be righteous or how to get to heaven. 
even though they may not have assurance of it. We find this all the time. Romans, speaking about the, the, the children of Israel in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul wrote, said, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, if we're going to come to God, if we're going to please God, we must accept God's way. The truth of God's word, by faith. We must believe what God says about himself. That he is holy. That he is really the only one that is good. Remember the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and came running and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why callest thou me good? There's one good. One good. And that is God. I used to think, you know, well, there's a lot of good people in the world. Well, it depends on who you compare it to. I, I encourage you sometime to get out of Webster's 1828 dictionary and look up the definition for the word good. It covers a page and a half or two pages. And when you understand truly what good means from a biblical perspective, there is none good. No, not one. Only God is good. Only God is good. See, we have to accept, you know, a true disciple accepts or believes uh, that what God says about himself. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 says, Which in his time he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. The Pope is no potentate. He's the Antichrist. Who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. You see, we, a, a, a true disciple understands and believes what God says about himself, that God cannot be approached unto by a sinful man. That we cannot approach unto him in ourselves. Second thing that we see here through this attitude of humility is we must believe what God says about us. I know these are basic things, but good reminders. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Romans 3.10.11, This is written, There is none righteous, none at one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. You know, I've heard people give testimony about how they were seeking God. No, they weren't seeking God. God seeks us. And we simply respond. You know, God's... God gives rain on the just and the unjust alike. He is constantly seeking us. Proverbs says, wisdom crieth out. You know, creation declares the glory of God. The ferment showeth his handiwork. God is seeking us. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, the Father seeketh such. In other words, he's looking for, he's searching for those who will uh, come to him and worship him in spirit and truth. God seeks us. So there is none that seeketh after God. You know, Isaiah 6 verse 5 says, Isaiah said, Then not, said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, of, the, King the Lord of hosts. In Luke chapter 5, verse, verse 8, Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, John the Baptist said, he, I am unworthy to unloose his shoes. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. The publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So how do you see yourself before God this morning? You know, a, a disciple sees himself as unworthy, of undeserving of the grace of God. He exemplifies an attitude of humility before God. But secondly, he also exemplifies an attitude of humility before men. Notice verse 10. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he he that bade thee, or the word bade means invited, he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. So he says, you know, a, a disciple will be one who will sit in the lowest. He won't take the highest seat. He'll sit. In, he'll take the lowest seat. He, he see. He has this attitude of humility with his fellow man. He doesn't think he's better than others. And of course, the the second greatest commandment is we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, Jesus said we're to love our enemies. Romans 13.8 Owe no man anything but by love, but love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Uh, then verse, I think it's verse 13, verse 10 says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So if we, if we love our neighbor, we will do right by him. We won't think we're better than he is. You know, one of the problems in the, in the Corinthian church was this problem of division, and it was caused by pride. And some were puffed up. And Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 6, he said, These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Paulus for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ? from another or what hast thou that thou didst not receive if thou didst receive it why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it you know sometimes we humans get this idea you know I'm just really smart How'd you get that way? None of us are naturally bright. No, we receive it from someone else. I mean, if you got knowledge of something, you got it somewhere. Somebody taught it to you, or you searched it out yourself by reading or studying what somebody else has taught. That's how you gain knowledge. It doesn't come from within yourself. Nothing comes from within yourself. 
but wickedness. So, who maketh thee to differ? Where does all wisdom come from? It comes from God. You see, a true disciple of the Lord will have this attitude of humility for his fellow men. And because of his attitude, his love and, and humility toward other men, he will not enslave others against their will. Now, slavery, now, mark what I say here. Slavery will always be a part of this world until the Lord comes. You say there's, there's slavery in the world today? Yeah, there is. But it's because of sinful man makes himself a slave. You study slavery in the Bible. Why were they slaves? Well, some of it was forced. I don't believe, I don't believe the Bible... It, condones force slavery but however there was slavery in the Bible if a man was careless was not frugal and he fell on hard times he would hire himself out as a servant to his brother for a certain length of time and then after he you know and the purpose of that was of course to to teach him instruct him to be frugal and then he had an opportunity to go out on his own again unless he didn't want to. Unless he liked his serving his master. And then, of course, they bore a hole in his ear and that meant he was a servant to that man for life. And many, many people today make themselves servants. But a true disciple looks at all men as he created equal. Acts 17.26 says, And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. You see, God's made of one blood all nations of people. We're all equally created in the sight of God. So how do you see yourself before other people? So a disciple has exemplifies an attitude of humility Secondly, a disciple lives to serve, not to be served. Once you notice verses 12 through 14, it says, Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. You know, the philosophy of our society is that a great proportion of our society is that they think they should be served. I call it this me first attitude. Me first attitude. But in Mark chapter 10, speaking of the Lord, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. You really think about the fact that even the angels are ministering spirits? Hebrews 1.14 tells us that. And Paul instructed the church at Philippi not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to, we are to... Uh, uh, 
not to esteem ourselves better than others, but we're to serve one another. And of course, he gives a great example there in, in Philippians chapter 2, how Christ made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. In Galatians 5.13, he says, Brethren, for ye have been called in liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be patient, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient. Talking there about a, a minister or a pastor. So, and he calls him a servant of the Lord. A servant. Look at Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 verses 5 and 6 says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart, your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, I asked you a question this morning. Are you serving somebody? You might say, well, no, I'm my own boss. I guess you really don't understand life then, do you? Because if you're working, you're serving somebody. You're serving somebody. What else? He serves people by working at Brantley's and selling birds. Bradley, through the company he works for, is serving Providing a service for people. Through rental properties, Betty, you're providing a service to people. Now, Nathan's his own boss. He don't serve anybody. But he is providing a service to people. He's serving people. Brother Hoyle is serving the public through the city of Raleigh. You know, I, I could say that about everyone here this morning that, that's working. You know, what, whatever you're in, whatever profession you're in, you're serving somebody. Wives are served their husbands, their children, at home. Amber, you're serving people at daycare. Actually, you know, we are, if you are working, you're serving somebody. You know, everybody that works serves someone, provides services of some kind. You know, as a church, that's what we're here for. We're here to serve people, not to be served. That, that's our purpose, is to serve people. I trust that's why you were on visitation yesterday. Endeavoring to serve the spiritual needs of people. The greatest need they have. An eternal need. You know, we give our tithes and our offerings so we can provide this service for people here and around the world through missions. You know, and if we live to serve, we will find the greatest joy and satisfaction in life. 
and will be rewarded by the Lord. Do you ever think about the fact that the most miserable people in life are people that are selfish, that only think of themselves? I like that quote in the bulletin this morning. He who rows the boat. That's not how it goes. He that works the oars does not rock the boat. Notice verse A here says, With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You know, wherever you serve, whatever capacity you serve, whether whether it's, you know, we, we, we have, I think, too long divided, you know, secular and, and, and ministry work. You know, all of our work as Christians is to be service to the Lord, for the Lord, to glorify the Lord. Whether it's at the city or whether it's at Branley's or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, having rental properties or whether it's at uh, uh, fixing washing machines or, or, or uh, uh, checking backflow plows or doing roots, whatever it is, or nursing, we're doing it to serve, as a service to the Lord, to glorify the Lord. Luke 14, 14, he says, Thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So, again, what's your philosophy of life? Are you living to serve or be served? Thirdly, so we see a disciple exemplifies an attitude of humility, lives to serve, not to be served. Thirdly, a disciple responds to the grace of God offered. Notice verses 16 through 20. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready, and they with all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go see it. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, if you read this carefully, you know that this man made a great supper, and it says, and he bade many, and then, and then it says, and sent his servant at supper time. The word bade many there means many had, had, had been invited and accepted the invitation, but then when the supper was ready, they made excuses. So the idea was, the invitation went out, they accepted the invitation, but when the supper was ready, then they decided not to go made excuses and it's pretty evident to me that these are foolish people because who would buy land without seeing it or buy a car without driving it that's like buying oxen without seeing if they work 
The word excuse means to avert displeasure by entreaty, to beg pardon, to crave indulgence or to excuse. One commentator said this, this means that many accepted the invitation that was first given, yet when the actual time of the banquet came, they were of different mind. To accept the invitation beforehand and then refuse it when the day came was a grave insult. Spurgeon said, quote, that I cannot come. In saying I cannot come, the man intended, as it were, to dismiss the matter. He wished to be understood as having made up his mind. He was no longer open to argument. He did not parlay, or he didn't want to discuss it. He did not talk. He just said offhand, I want no more persuading. I cannot come, and that settles it, unquote. Now this was, you know, this is, this, I think this is, a, in my opinion, a continual discourse, but it's a really direct response to what a man said in verse 15, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, the children of Israel had, had desired to be part of the kingdom of God. They thought they were part of the kingdom of God, and the Jews were long awaiting their Messiah, but when he came, they refused him. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, his own received him not. You know, they claimed, long claimed to be God's children. Children of the kingdom. But when the king came, they didn't want him. They refused him. Oh, times have not changed, nor people have changed. People know they have problems and uncertainty in life. Not sure where they're going to spend eternity. Although they have knowledge of God. They have family issues they cannot resolve. Marital problems, financial problems, etc., etc. But they will not seek the one who created and gave them life. Who can give peace in an uncertain world can give them assurance of eternal life, wisdom for life's problems, and strength to resolve and overcome them through His exceeding great and precious promises, but they will not come. Luke 8.14, speaking about the seed of the word, it says, And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares, Riches and pleasures of life. And bring no fruit to perfection. Mark 4.19 The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. See, they're not willing. You know, people, even, you know, they were not willing to seek ye first. Or like people today, they're not willing to seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They really don't thirst and hunger after righteousness. For, the, for God said, for the Lord said in, in, the, in the, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. In other words, they will be satisfied. <laughs> See, too often we want our problems and uncertainty to go away, but we don't want. How many times if we take these surveys and I'll see an answer 
do you think it's possible to know 100% for sure you're going to heaven? And you'll see an answer like this one, not quite. Or don't know for sure. And they may say they're interested, as this one did. But when you call them, they have excuse after excuse after excuse. Now, if I got one of these since we started them, I've got at least two dozen. Just like this. You know how many times through the years that I've been in the ministry, now if there was a bunch of preachers here, they'd all give you an answer right away. You, know, you prepare a message, and as you're preparing the message, the Lord brings someone to your mind that this message would really help. And you get up and preach it, and you look out, and guess what? They're not there. cares of this life or the pleasures of life interfere you see faith cometh by hearing that's preaching little faith means maybe we're not hearing Spurgeon said this quote excuses are curses and when you have no excuses left there will be hope for you As long as you make excuses, there's no hope. You know, there have been people come to me already and, and, and they're in a terrible situation, but they know they're in that situation and they know they need help and they want help. You know, someone like that can be in the worst situation, but you can help them because they know where they are. They acknowledge their need and are willing to receive help. So are you responsive? You know, a disciple is one who responds to God's grace. You know, the last phrase in this chapter is, is, a, is a phrase that Jesus used often, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So we have to have ears to hear. So a disciple responds to the grace of God. Fourthly, a disciple is devoted to his Lord. In verses 25 to 27 it says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be not my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in a sermon he preached, Spurgeon said this, about, uh, talking about these parables, the parable of the, the, the discipleship here uh, of uh, verses 25 to 27 in the parable of the tower and also the parable of the king going forth to war. He said three things about it. First of all, true religion is costly. Are we willing to count the cost? Number two, wisdom suggests before we enter upon it, we should estimate the cost. The building of the tower. Before you build a tower, you want to know what it costs. To make sure you have enough to finish it. And thirdly, cost what it may, it is worth the cost. 
you're to have eternal life. There's nothing of greater value than that. There's nothing more pleasurable, more fulfilling, more satisfying than walking with the Lord. So cost what it may, it's worth the cost. Someone has said, quote, failure to count the cost of following Christ results in an unfinished life, unquote. You see, a call to discipleship of Christ means a life in which he has the preeminence. If he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord of all, at all. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Luke 6, 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? So Jesus saying here is that true discipleship requires that he has preeminence over family relationships, even over your own life and ambitions. Verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now we know that what he says means when he says there, and hate not his father and mother, is we love them less than we love the Lord. And they take second place to the Lord. So discipleship requires that he has preeminence over family relationships in our own life. Secondly, it requires proper preparation to finish it or to stick to it. It's not, well, I'm saved and I live my life as I please. No. A disciple is a learner. One who adheres to the teachings of another. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. You know, 11 of the 12 followed Jesus all the way through. One of them didn't. One of them bailed out. Because he was not a true disciple. He said, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Brother Forney said something that was stuck in my mind. I'll never forget this. He said, it is impossible to disciple someone that's not converted. You know, a person that makes profession is not interested in growing in Christ is very, 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 very unlikely. Likely not saved. They're not saved. You see, being a disciple of Christ, 
And I'll conclude with this. Being a disciple of Christ makes a difference in your life that will also affect others. It is like salt. Does salt change things that it's put into? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Notice verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Salt. Definition says that the meaning is, it is your prerogative to impart to mankind the influences required for a life of devotion to God. We're to be salt of the earth. So we're to impart to mankind the influences required for a life that's devoted to Christ or the life of a disciple. It should make impact or affect other people. Not only your own life, but others. Salt is a symbol of that health and vigor of soul which is essential to Christian virtue. Salt is a symbol of lasting concord because it protects food from crucifixion, preserves it unchanged. You know, if we're a true disciple, we'll be like salt, preserved, being purified. I remember every every year we butcher, and Dad always salt cured the hams. You know, he would take those ham and he had this mixture of salt and some brown sugar, and I'm not sure what was all was in there, and and he'd just rub it, rub it, rub it into that meat. And then it, we'd hang it up out in the smokehouse. Someplace that was cold. Not freezing, but cold. And I can't remember how long we left it there. But I'm, that preserved that meat. I never liked it because it was always salty. Too salty for me. I like salt and things, but not that much salt. You see, it had an effect. It purified. If we are a disciple of Christ, if we are a true disciple, we'll be preserved. And we'll be purifying ourselves, even as he is pure. Jude says that we're preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So I asked you this morning, are you a true disciple of Christ? Are these characteristics true in your life? Has your salvation brought a change or has, has it affected your life for the glory of God? And is it affecting others? How is it with you this morning?